Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. My name is Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I made the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and the daughter of Holocaust survivors. I immigrated from Holland to the United States in 2006 because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller, founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, ThinEdgeOfTheWedge.com. And I grew up in a small town in the Midwest where it was not a Holocaust community. Our parents and grandparents had immigrated to the United States from Latvia and Russia in the early 20th century. Yet my US Army officer husband and I found ourselves stationed in Munich, Germany in 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II, and this changed our lives forever. Our guest today is Blake Flayton. Blake Flayton is the director of New Media and the weekly columnist at the Jewish Journal in Los Angeles. He's also the founder of and executive director of the New Zionist Congress. Welcome, Blake, to our show. Thank today, you for coming on. Yes, and today I get to ask the first question. You are very involved in using social media to combat anti-Semitism and misinformation about Jews in Israel. What factors in your own life led you to this interest? Well, first of all, I wanna say, of course, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here, very grateful to be here. Um, second, to answer your question, you know, if you would have told me three years ago or two and a half years ago that I would be working full time in a career talking about Jewish things, writing about Jewish things, uh, advocating for the Jews and against anti-Semitism online, I would have said you're crazy. Uh, I would have said, you're, you know, what are you smoking? I want some. Um, <laughs> it was just, it was an unthinkable career path for me because it was all about politics. That's all what I wanted to do. I wanted to, um, you know, get involved in the political spheres in Washington, D.C. I wanted to go to protests. I wanted to uh, work on Capitol Hill. I wanted to intern for a bunch of different organizations. That was always my path. Um, but in college, um, I was confronted with a breed of anti-Semitism that at first I did not realize was anti-Semitism. I thought it was just um, virulent criticism of Israel. Um, I thought it was disagreement with the ideas of Zionism. And I was led to believe that a extremely uh, pressing human rights injustice was being carried out in that region of the world and that it was my obligation as a Jew to not only distance myself from Zionism and from the Zionist Jewish community, but to also, if I wanted to be considered a good progressive, publicly uh, disavow Israel and join the forces on campus who crusade against Zionist activity. It wasn't until doing my own research and uh, which I'm very grateful that I took it upon myself to do because many people in my position, many young college freshmen do not. It wasn't until I did my own research and I began speaking to some more, um, you know, more people who had different viewpoints and really getting the full breadth and scope of this conversation that I realized that what was being discussed and the atmosphere on campus didn't really have much to do with Israeli policy. 
it didn't really have much to do with what was happening on the ground in the area that we call Israel-Palestine. The people who are railing against Israel in the quad, in lecture halls, professors, students, organizations, various, you know, uh, left-wing advocacy groups all over the Washington, D.C. area where I went to school, they weren't really knowledgeable about um, the actual reality of, of the Middle East. And it, it dawned upon me that what I am seeing happening in front of my eyes is just the, um, the revamping, the refashioning of centuries-old anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes and conspiracies to make them more fashionable mm. uh, and palatable to Western left-wing ears. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we can get into a conversation about the ins and outs of how they do that and why they do that. But to start off, I would say that that sort of epiphany moment, that aha moment, that this really doesn't have much to do with politics is what set me down this career path. Um, and then of course, uh, things that you know were happening to me on campus that were not just to me, but to the Jewish community on campus that were of course anti-Semitic scandals and such that had nothing really to do with Israel. Um, an example was, you know, there was a there was a video that was leaked to the student body of a, of a boy walking this girl down a hallway, and he asks her, "What are we going to do to Israel?" And she turns around and she says, "We're going to bomb Israel, you Jewish pieces of shit." Um, or, you know, the uh, there was a pride march in Washington D.C. that banned, you know, uh, any any uh, any image of the Megan David because it was apparently a nationalist symbol. Of course, no other nationalist symbols, symbols were banned, just this one. Um, various organizations at my school like that I wanted to be a part of, like um, organizations that fight for environmental justice, for LGBT rights, for reproductive freedom, for all of those things that I cared about, um, they all had written in their bylaws that they were against the idea of Israel, that they condemned Israel, and then they would not partner with any people or any organization at school that supported Israel. So really just marginalizing Jewish life on campus um, at various club meetings, even if they had nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, nothing to do with um, uh, foreign policy in general. Uh, a club could be gathering to talk about, you know, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And yet Israel and Palestine would be such a pressing part of their spiel, of their organizing work. I realized that there was something much more sinister going on. Um, and, and so in November of 2019, I wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times called On the Front Lines of Progressive Antisemitism. Um, and it did very well. It was a very popular opinion piece. And since then, I've been writing and using social media to advocate against anti-Semitism and starting my own nonprofit and um, making Aliyah very soon. So things have definitely, uh, you know, picked up the pace a little bit from, from all those years ago at college. Let's just say that. Wow. And um, that, that's an amazing uh, history of uh, your activism. Um, and, and your Aliyah, has that to do with uh, the anti-Semitism you encounter in America, or is it just a positive step for you to, because you love Israel so much? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there, there, there's mainly pull factors rather than push factors. You know, I'm mainly being pulled to Israel rather than kicked out of the United States because I love it here. I live in New York City now and it's my home and it's been my family's home forever. Um, but so, so it very much is the pull factors of, 
you know, if I want to continue writing about Israel and talking about Israel, I should probably live there for a little bit. I should probably learn how to speak Hebrew well. I should probably, you know, meet all the people who I'm supposed to meet on both sides of the green line. If I want to continue my commentary on Israel-Palestine, it just seems to make sense. It seems to be a natural progression in my career. Um, but I also feel like, you know, I also feel like the American Jewish community is in trouble. Um, and not all of that trouble has to do with anti-Semitism. Some of it does, you know, of course it's rising and of course it's, you know, a dramatic thing that we must contend with. But I also think that um, some of it has to do with more uh, assimilation, um, especially on the reform side where I come from, you know, I'm a secular reform Jew, but I also am against, you know, assimilation and, and turning Judaism into something that it's not you know, in, in order for it to be more respectable to non-Jewish to non-Jewish communities. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors happening in the United States in regards to the Jewish community that make me feel nervous. Um, and so it's, so it's a little bit of that as well. Okay. So um, you, you just spoke about campus and, and Phyllis, if you're all right with it, I would like to ask a question about that. Um, so you, you describe it as if on campus being virulently anti-Israel, not only anti-Israel politics, but anti-Israel's existence uh, is, is fashionable. Uh, how come? Is that a spontaneous uh, movement on campus or is it organized? Where, where does it come from? Do you know that? Yes. So um, this is something that has been around for hundreds of years, actually. Um, when, when there is a radical political movement that is trying to gain supporters, that is trying to gain followers, it doesn't matter if it's on the right or the left, but it usually is, is radical and essentialist in its, in its ideas. It could be across the political, religious, ideological spectrum. They need this movement in order to expand its coalition needs something to resemble all that their movement is against. Mm -mm. So if you are on the right, you need something to resemble socialism, cosmopolitanism, uh, communism, elitism, liberalism, multiculturalism, immigration, refugees, right? Those are all the things that your ideology detests, thinks is holding us back. If you're on the left, you need something to pinpoint as the face of capitalism, colonialism, racism, imperialism, genocide, apartheid, discrimination, et cetera. All the things that you are against, all the things that you have marked as the worst things in the world. Once you designate an entity as all that your ideology hates, it becomes much easier to sort of rally the troops right? Because now we have something to blame. Now we have something to coalesce around. Now we have something to point the finger out and say, they, they are the problem. Getting rid of them will be the solution because it's easy, you know, appealing to anger is a great way to, you know, appeal to people, especially people who are frustrated and, and, and or economically depressed or, you know, socially marginalized, you know, and, 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 and the 21st century has seen a lot of that, right? And similar ways that the, the 20th, uh, 20, 20th century, the first half of the 20th century did. Um, and time and time again, the person, the entity, the thing on the end of that pointing finger, on the opposite side of that pointing finger has been the Jews, 
the Jews, the Jews. Why has it been the Jews? Because until 1948, the Jews had absolutely no way of doing anything about being the scapegoat, right? We had no mechanisms uh, to counteract that or to defend ourselves against whatever a political movement wanted to do against us, right? Now, after 1948, two things have happened. One, there is the establishment of the state of Israel, meaning you can't just attack the Jews with impunity and and expect nothing to happen. Um, And two, it was after the Holocaust, 1948. And so the left, the left side of the political spectrum has understood that, you know, saying terrible things about the Jews is politically incorrect and makes you sound like a Nazi and makes you sound like a racist and a bigot. But, and this is an idea that was kind of crafted together in the Soviet Union in the 70s. But if you say Zionists and Israel instead of Jews and Jewish people, all of a sudden, because it's a nation state, it's an established, you know, uh, powerful entity, all of a sudden you can refashion all of those anti-Semitic tropes and it sounds like progress, like justice. It sounds uh, reasonable to uh, Western academics and politicians and elites and activists, you know, and, and it serves them well because it gets people angry and interested in their movement because now they have a scapegoat. So it's the exact same form of politics that we've been seeing against Jews forever. And that is why there is a war against Israel on campus. You know, I talked about in my first uh, answer how Israel and the issue of Israel-Palestine was brought into any issue under the sun, whether it pertained to, uh, you know, climate change, feminism, LGBT rights, criminal justice reform. There was always a condemnation of Israel somewhere in there, right? And you ask yourself why. It's because they're using Israel and the crimes of Israel as the point of blame for why there is injustice here. They're saying policemen are killing unarmed black people. Well, it's the IDF who are training them, right? That's that's the construct. I just wanna say one thing. We do have some questions, but this is the part I don't understand. You said it, I mean, I don't know that I've ever heard it said so clearly. So first I wanna thank you. Yeah. But I, I guess I just can't understand the logic because I'm worried about abortion rights, for example. So let's just make it as a, what do you call it? An imaginary conversation. How in a meeting about how we want to make sure that abortion rights are taken away from women, we get anywhere, we being that group, by blaming Israel. I mean, I just, that's the... You get farther by blaming Israel. And this is what anti-Semites have been doing for hundreds of years. What does anti-Semitism do? It is a remarkable instrument of politics. It is the only instrument of politics that has united right and left, that unites religious and anti-religious, that unites internationalists and nationalists, that unites cosmopolitan and insular. It unites all across the political spectrum. And so on campus, you have these groups who have different goals. One goal might be to get the school to divest from fossil fuels. One goal might be to, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, pay janitors at the school more. And then the other goal might be, you know, to fight against uh, restrictions being placed on women's reproductive health across the country, right? Now you can bang on your drum all day, just 
in your own personal group about how you're going to go to the Capitol, about how you're going to, you know, make noise and write petitions and call your congressman. But how are you going to get those other people from the school to join your fight? How are you going to get them to join your coalition? Well, this is the genius of the BDS campaign and of the anti-Israel movement on campus. It has successfully convinced progressives on the college campus that the thing that unites all of these intersectional uh, problems, all of these causes, is the oppression of the Palestinian. The Palestinian is the poster child for global oppression, for global injustice. So by bringing the Palestinian issue into your politics, you can all of a sudden perk the interest of all of these other people on campus who have been convinced that, oh, because they're supportive of BDS, we should be supportive of them too, because we're supportive of BDS. That's the goal of the BDS movement on campus, is to build that coalition against the Jewish organizations on campus. Right. Frightening, but Thank you so much for that. It also, it also, it also makes people, I mean, how are you going to get people, how are you going to activate people? Let's say you're having a meeting, um, you know, we're, and, and we're talking about, you know, how we need to march to protest, you know, Oklahoma's latest bill that yes. pretty much criminalizes abortion. Right. Okay? How are you going to get people angry enough and committed enough and motivated enough to do this? Well, it's all well and good to talk about the draconian legislation that's, that's, that's preventing you know, uh, uh, women from their reproductive freedom, but you need, you need those buzzwords in your message in order to get as much people riled up as possible. You need to talk about white supremacy because we're all, you know, very concerned about white supremacy. Now you need to talk about institutional racism. You need to talk about misogyny. You need to talk about apartheid. You need to talk about colonialism and genocide and and cultural appropriation to, because those are the buzzwords of the era, right? In the same ways that in the era of Nazi Germany, you know, inflation, uh, uh, economy, you know, uh, uh, German purity, Aryan race, you know, those were the, the, the buzzwords, okay? Well, you can't very well attach those buzzwords to just issues having to do with abortion. So that's where Israel comes in. And Israel is a perfect whipping post. You know, Israel, 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 people get more angry, more motivated, uh, uh, more more inspired really to carry out their goals. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I, I think that um, the pro-Palestinian movement has, uh, the, the Palestinian movement has, worked hard to become part of the coalition of the intersectional uh, issues and uh, has has very worked very hard to create this atmosphere also and they've designated themselves as the linchpin of the intersectional movement by yeah. the way yeah they have marked they have very successfully told everybody on campus that your movement is not sufficiently progressive. It's not sufficiently intersectional unless it champions Palestinian rights and Palestinian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Movements. Okay, Phyllis? I think it is, you have the next question, right? Do you want me to no. ask it? No, so, but let me ask, ask the next, next question then. So um, what are the strategies that you propose against this new anti-Semitism that we see on campus, we see it also on 
on, on, on the internet, on social media. Um, what is the strategy against it? So I'll tell you what's not working and then I'll tell you what can work. Okay. So in the past, um, a lot of the energy has been coalesced around defending Israel and defending Zionism, right? Saying, oh no, Israel is not a racist white supremacist country. Uh, you know, we are a pluralistic democracy and, you know, where there's a bunch of different languages and people from all across the world have spoken. And the only reason we might be occupying the West Bank is because, you know, wars were launched against us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or no, 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 you know, we have a gay pride parade in Tel Aviv. Look at that. You know, we have feminists in our government. You know, I'm not concerned, nor am I worried about defending Israel. Israel has the IDF. They need the IDF a lot more. They're going to make a lot more use of the IDF than some 21-year-old, you know, on his computer in, in New York City, right? Israel's going to be fine. Um, Baruch Hashem. We, and, and that's where we, we fall into this trap a lot of the times where we're faced with these completely illogical arguments that, again, are not about Israeli policy. They're about what Israel is, not what Israel does. They say Israel has no right to exist. Israel is, you know, uh, an artificial creation, Zionism is racism, Zionism is colonialism. And to that, it has been taught to so many Jewish young people to say, no, 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 Jews are indigenous to the land, our culture goes back 4,000 years. No, 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 we've offered peace so many times. You know, it's not our fault. We're, you know, what about ter terrorists? What about Hamas? What about, you know, all of this, all of the ways that we try to protect ourselves? No, because once you do that, you're validating their argument right? You're giving it an air of legitimacy. Instead of defending Zionism, I and the goal of the new Zionist Congress is to instead prosecute anti-Zionism. Anti-Zionism before the year 1975. In 1975, the Soviet Union passed Resolution 3379 at the United Nations, which designated Zionism as a form of racism, which made it ultimately anti-Zionism suddenly a left-wing cause. But before that, it sounded like a right-wing cause, because it is. It sounded imperialist, it sounded Nazi, it like, like Nazism, it sounded genocidal, it said we're gonna push the Jews into the sea, we're going to destroy Israel, the Jews have no right to be here, you know, the Jews are beneath us. It sounded horrible and bigoted, right? The genius of the Soviet Union was changing that language to make it sound respectable. But it is our job to say, no, 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 what you are proposing is the racist colonialist endeavor. What you are proposing is a far right wing reactionary movement to destroy the only Jewish country on earth. Why are you so uncomfortable with Jews having only one country? Why are you so uncomfortable with Jews reserving their right to self-determination in their ancestral homeland? Why have you and your side failed to sign so many peace agreements? Why have you not said anything about Gaza lifting uh, Hamas, lifting machetes above their head and saying the, the goal is to kill all Jews? Why have you not confronted the Palestinian Authority on their policies to pay terrorists for killing Jews? You know, it need, we need to play offensive. It needs to be, why have you done this? If you say to me that Israel's committing a genocide against Palestinians, I'm not gonna tell you, 
oh no, that's not true. You know, oh, Israel is doing so much great work. It's committed to democracy. It's committed to pluralism. I'm going to take out my phone. I'm going to show you a map of Palestinian population growth over the past 30 years. I'm going to get as many students around me as possible. I'm going to put it in your face and I'm going to say, before you say another word, tell me why you're lying. Okay, and does this work? Yes. It does, because as I said, this usually has nothing to do with politics. If, and this is another way about being offensive, uh, about being offensive, right, on the offense. A lot of times when people start engaging with me and they start saying these ridiculous things about Israel, I ask them very simple questions. What is the green line? Who has sovereignty over area A and B? What happened in Gaza in 2006? What happened in Israel between 2001 and 2005? What was, what did, what did Ehud Barak propose? What did Ehud Olmer propose? What were the Oslo Accords? What was the Camp David summit? They know none of these answers. Okay. So what you're doing is you're flipping the conversation back around to them, prosecuting their ideas and making them look rather silly. That is the way forward because this is, we can't fight a logical, illogical warfare with logic. It has not worked for us. No, it, there's also it's it, the, the, the motivation is also not logic. It's emotion and wanting to belong to a, to, to a bigger movement that actually right. punishes you if you don't think alike. That's right. That's right. right. And you punish their thoughtless opinion mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a way. That is that, an opinion that is not, by the way, uh, researched or well-read at all. It's an opinion that has come from the same things that everyone else has said, and they're just parroting exactly. here on campus. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm thinking of telling a little aside, just of something that happened in the last week or so, on, on, because you'll see on, on Facebook, on a, a Jewish woman writers group, someone was very upset because she'd just been in Segovia, Spain, and the Jewish Education Center was selling a book in Spanish called, you'll recognize the book, I'm saying in English, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion <laughs> in the Jewish Education Center. Wow, 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 well, wow, wow. It's not there anymore because thanks to Evelyn's and my contacts, Evelyn doesn't even know this yet. I haven't told her. But then 24 hours, I contacted my contact in Geneva at World Jewish Congress. He contacted his Spanish government uh, contacts and the book was removed. But that's what we have to deal with. I'm sure, I suspect that they didn't know what the book was. They saw the word Zion in it, right? And they thought, yeah. oh, we'll carry this book in our Jewish education center. So okay. we are fighting at so many different levels. Right. But let's roll back a second, because I didn't get to ask you that question about, tell us about the new Jewish Congress, okay? New Zionist Congress. New Zionist. Yes, of course. So the New Zionist Congress is a new nonprofit organization that my friends and I launched last year. Um, and we're still in the kind of infantile stages right now. But what we've been doing over the last uh, year or so is just a slew of programming. You know, we've been having weekly discussions with um, our members. We've been having hosting book clubs with important authors of the books that we read. We've been hosting interviews. We've been hosting movie nights. We've been hosting essay competitions. We've been hosting fundraisers and um, meetups and and it's it's been wonderful. It's it's been a kind of a stitching together of a young Zionist community, um, not only in this country but all over the world. 
Um, we have a lot of events coming up in the, in the upcoming weeks. We have a, a lecture by Ben Freeman on Holocaust revisionism over Yom HaShoah. He's been um, on the show. We've had him on the show. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, we have uh, a book club on David Badil's book, Jews Don't Count, at the end of the month. Um, we have uh, hopefully an interview with Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post uh, sometime next month. So there's a lot of really great things coming up. And the goal for NZC is to kind of stratify what we're doing at the national virtual level right now to as many cities in the country as possible so that there could be multiple NZC chapters that essentially host their own book clubs, their own movie nights, their own discussions, their own debates, you know, et cetera. Um, and then once a year, all of the chapters come together for an annual summit in Israel. That is the goal. And really the message, the moral behind NZC is to sort of inject that youthful energy that Zionism had in its early days that really made Zionism succeed, not only, you know, in on the bookish end of things, you know, with, with Herzl and, and Ben-Gurion and, 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 and Ahad Am, but also in, you know, the, the first through fourth Aliyot and the people who actually made Aliyah. And that's another thing we very much encourage at NZC is to make Aliyah and to uh, learn Hebrew and to uh, become more Jewish, whatever that means to you. Um, we, we're trying to challenge, you know, the image of the Zionists as sort of a suit and tie, APAC dinner attendee, you know, a very established, well, well endowed member of the community, you know, who gives you his card. We're, we're focused on that grassroots energy, you know, making content that young people can easily share and, and, and ascribe to. So let's, yeah. let's just a couple of examples. We're cutting near our end of our time and we want to give you last thoughts, but what are the kind of things that people can share on social media on the offensive and not on the defensive? Well, a great uh, a great thing that I uh, sometimes do is I, you know, will take a, a screenshot of an article from like Al Jazeera or from Middle East Eye or for even for some, you know, once no noteworthy and notable papers like the the Nation or you know left wing uh, outlets in the United States, and I simply just post you know, what, 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 you know, their writings about Israel, Palestine, about Zionism. And I go in with an edit button and I just scratch things out. And I say like, this is a lie. This is untrue, or this is underreported. Here's what's actually going on. Um, I can bring up a, a, a post that did quite well on my Instagram just recently. Um, so on April 2nd, there was a gathering of, of Palestinian activists um, outside Grand Central Station um, who were saying uh, a list of defamatory wrong things against Israel and against Zionists. Um, so I posted on my Instagram, I said, this week in New York City, anti-Israel activists assembled a crowd of hundreds to demand Zionist students and Zionist professors be no longer welcomed on campus. They then burst into chants of globalize the Intifada and from the river to the sea. These are calls to hurt Jewish people, not only in Israel, but everywhere in the world. Therein lies the monster hiding behind BDS. Behind the seemingly innocent activism on campus is Nazi-esque Soviet Union-inspired anti-Semitism. And then I included a video of everything that they had been saying. This is great because I'm not defending Israel. I'm not defending the Jewish people. Right. I don't need to defend the Jewish people. Nobody in the face of anti-Semitism should ever make it a priority to defend or to justify. It's to poke the finger at them and say, here's what they are doing. I think that's an excellent strategic advice all our listeners can take to heart and use. Um, and um, I also uh, uh, agree with you that, that it is, uh, Soviet architecture 
the, the Soviet brand of anti-Semitism that was propagated in the 70s, late 60s and in the 70s. I personally lived that in Western Europe. I, I could see it presented to me uh, in the West, in the Western European media. Um, and I, I have a, a huge deja vu when I uh, hear what is being presented to students on campus about Israel and Jews. Um, right. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 Really? So this this has been really a very informative talk. I, it's I really love because your whole thing defending is not going to work because people want to be right. But flipping it on them is, I think it's brilliant. I think you've given our listeners a really brilliant way. I think it's gonna, it's not just something to think in, in 30 minutes or so. We have to kind of really think about it. Then yes. Something happens, then we have to say, how do we flip it? I mean, it's take it's gonna take some time for most of us to kind of learn to change our mind. But do give us some last thoughts before we sign off. I would say that it is a Jewish uh, compulsion. Uh, over hundreds of years to when we're faced with animosity, when we're faced with um, grievance and violence, to constantly look inward, you know, to constantly try to piece together where we went wrong, or what we could be doing to, to make things right. If we're going to seriously fight this, this wave of anti-Semitism that masks itself as peace and justice, which is anything but, it's the opposite of peace and justice, we're going to have to learn not to look inward. We're gonna to have to learn to take a stand and to be confident um, and to demand more of the other side of the aisle, which is really the essence of Zionism in and of itself. Thank right. you, Blake. As I just said, this has been so informative. We are so appreciative. And we thank our audience for listening. And any, any of you who have not yet watched the documentary that Evelyn is in, that's about anti-Semitism in Europe and the United States, uh, which is Never Again Is Now, which is what we take the title of our podcast from. You can see it on Amazon and YouTube, and you can learn more about my nonfiction Holocaust play, Thin Edge of the Wedge, at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And everyone, whenever you can, without putting yourself in physical danger, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate. <laughs>